Welcome back to the National Restaurant Owners Podcast. This is episode 52 with David Leonardo from Chillin' Nitrogen Ice Cream. We're entering a time right now where we're seeing a lot of conversion opportunities. You know, and for obviously there's a lot of restaurant um, owners that are suffering out there and they got to really figure out how to make the best of their existing uh, four walls. But for those that are in a position to potentially capitalize on this, uh, this moment we're living through, you know, there's a lot of um, turnkey opportunities out there that can really allow you to get into some really good real estate. This is the National Restaurant Owners Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle and Sarah. And look, I have learned everything I've learned in the restaurant business by doing it the hard way. I've learned by making mistakes. I've learned by losing money. I've learned by losing partners. And I'm here to share those experiences with you so you don't have to experience any of that. So whether it's scaling your business, learning how to be more efficient in your day-to-day operations, or just stay in the know with COVID reopening strategies, my goal is to provide as much value as humanly possible, particularly as we get going in this new year, 2021. But before we get started, I want to let you know that you can find the full video of each episode on my YouTube channel, along with several other videos featuring restaurant-related tips and insight. Now, let's get into this week's episode. If you're looking to grow your restaurant concept, whether in your local market, regionally, or across the country, you need to speak to the team over at Sabre Advisors. And yes, that is the team that I work with. And I'm very proud and grateful to say that they are a sponsor of the show now. And let me just tell you how this goes, because I know so many of you restaurant owners are looking at brochures every week that different brokers are sending you. You're driving by these vacant restaurants and you want to know which one's available, et cetera, et cetera. Look, just going to put it out there. That's not how the successful groups do it. They put a process behind it. They put a team behind it. So whether you have an in-house real estate department, which can be very expensive for you to tackle, or if you're an independent restaurant, the services can be the same. And the best part is 99% of the time, 99.9999% of the time, it costs the restaurant owner, the tenant, nothing. These are transactional fees that get paid for by the landlords who we we team you up with. So look, whether you're looking for an alternative to that real estate department or you want a custom program of services tailored just for your restaurant concept, we can help you put a process behind it that will make it way less stressful for you and will help you achieve those goals. So if you're interested in that, Text me 914-996-4569. We can set up a Zoom call. We can talk about exactly what that looks like, what it means to build out your pipeline, finding your demographic, finding your psychographic, and understanding these markets that you're considering. So text me again, 914-996-4569, and head over to the Sabre website, sabre.life, and check out what we're all about. All right, guys. My next guest is David Leonardo from Chillin' Nitrogen Ice Cream. They are based out of Miami, Florida, where I'm headed in a little bit. I'm headed down there for a couple of days to get some sun. So David and I are going to hopefully link up. But David is, uh, he's a senior executive with a ton, a ton of experience in uh, developing regional and multinational brands through franchising. He's got a bunch of experience working with private equity groups, developers, multi-unit operators to help them expand and grow 
in the U.S. as well as overseas. Uh, he's really, really what I call a restaurant entrepreneur. He has that spirit, and he really loves the process. And you can tell he loves the Chillin' brand and what it's all about and how it started and where it is now. Um, on top of that, he's very proud to announce that Chillin' Ice Cream has been included in QSR Magazine's Top 40 Fast Casual Units in the country for 2021. So keep an eye out for them. I know they got big plans and I'm looking forward to checking them out on my vacation. <laughs> Check it out guys. David Leonardo, chilling nitrogen ice cream. All right, guys, welcome back to the National Restaurant Owners Podcast. I am with David Leonardo from Chillin' Nitrogen Ice Cream. David, thanks for joining me, man. Thanks, Kyle. Happy to be here. Of course. Um, you know, hey, we were just talking uh, before we got on here about you know, sales and how things have been impacted. But before we get into that, uh, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and about your concepts? Yeah. So uh, I've been in the restaurant space for over 20 years um, with some big uh, multinational and regional brands like Burger King, Arby's, Wendy's, um, primarily doing a lot of business development and franchise development. So really understanding what it takes to kind of take these brands and bring in private equity investors and high net worth individuals to grow more stores. And so I've uh, parlayed that into um, a CEO role here with a very small mom and pop startup uh, down here in South Florida called Chillin' Nitrogen Ice Cream, which was one of the first players in the nitrogen ice cream space. And what we're doing basically is we're making custom ice cream one bowl at a time, one cup at a time, right? And so we make it right in front of you. We use all local ingredients. Um, our farms are right here in Florida. And uh, very high quality, but the fact that we're making it right there on the spot um, pretty much ensures that you have the freshest ice cream that money can buy. And so what we've done that's unique in our process is we've actually automated a lot of the, uh, the mixing, the dispensing of the liquid nitrogen, and, and a lot of that operational component. So for less labor and more efficiency, you can actually uh, get a very consistent um, cup of ice cream. So that's what we've been doing here, and, and we have eight stores. Interesting. I mean, you had said this started as a mom and pop. Um, what was that like? How did, how did that start out? Yeah, so our founder, Danny Golick, uh, graduated from the University of Florida, was actually thinking about going to med school and was taking some time off to study for his MCATs. Always been an entrepreneur growing up, even in college and high school, started different businesses. And one of his buddies told him about this uh, shop up in Northern Florida that was actually pouring liquid nitrogen into a bowl of cream and turning it into ice cream. And they drove up there and there was a line around the corner for this little ice cream shop. And there, and Danny was like, wait a minute, there is nothing like this in Miami. And secondly, I think I could actually improve upon the process. Uh, and Danny's always been a tinker of technology, kind of really kind of a, a techie guy. And so he started tinking, tinkling, um, excuse me, messing around with the technology and kind of thinking about ways that he can make it more efficient. And that's when he opened up the first location back in 2012 in Pinecrest, Florida. And like most brands, Kyle, you know, it was a home run store to begin with. And uh, to this day, still one of the top stores in the system for us. Um, but that store really is what drove the, the first of all, it drove him to say, forget about med school. Um, <laughs> That's right. But, but it really drove him to say, my goodness, this, this, I think we have something here. Let me keep investing in kind of technology and figuring out how to make it faster. Because even in, in that environment, the line was just, you know, out the door around the corner and just everybody was loving the high quality of the product. 
I mean, imagine that's it's more laborious than just scooping something out of a tub and throwing it onto a cone. So I, I would imagine the lines build up pretty quickly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, I mean, the way traditional ice cream has been made for hundreds of years is you make it in a factory and you ship it out to hundreds of locations across the country. They sit it in a they sit it in a freezer in a bucket. And then you basically your employees are scooping it out for the next couple months until at some point that ice cream goes bad and you have to throw away whatever's there. And so what we've done is literally not too different from what every restaurant's doing. It's kind of like, how do you create a farm to table approach? How do you create like a customization where whatever that, whatever that client wants, he's going to get right there on the spot. So we actually can make your ice cream out of regular cream, out of yogurt, out of tart. We now have alternative milks, which are coconut milk, almond milk, and oat milk. So imagine getting any flavor ice cream made out of any of those bases, and we don't have to worry about inventory sitting there and being wasted, right? Yeah, um, that's. That, I mean, that's a, that's a huge. I mean, that's. I mean, that's, there's a lot of logistics to manage on that that side as well. But in terms of the customer experience and the quality, that certainly seems like the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And so the challenge that you have as a restaurateur is when you have someone making an order that is just so customized at the moment, how do you make sure that the minute they make the order to the time they're picking it up, it isn't, it isn't too long, right? To kind of uh, ruin that experience. And so we have it down now that, you know, the time you order to picking it up, it usually takes somewhere between two and three minutes, sometimes up to five minutes on a weekend where things can get pretty busy, which truth of the matter is, is that um, at least from what we hear from our customers, that's not a problem whatsoever, right? I mean, because remember, you're also experiencing the whole process, right? Kids are looking at the smoke. Yeah. They're seeing that whole process of it being made. And then by the time it's done, you're, you're getting it at the end of the assembly line. Well, it's an experience. I mean, that sounds like it's different than walking to a regular ice cream store, right? And, and very few kids, A, number one, are not going to get off any line for ice cream. doesn't matter what that's like. But when you have all that other stuff going on there, I mean, you're really creating an in-store experience. Was that part of the concept? Yeah. So I think initially the experience um, was definitely a driver. But what we've learned over time and, and part of the reason we've been a success for you know, going on eight years is I think experience um, gets people in the door a couple times. But then really what gets them to come back is the quality and the value. Right. And so what we've basically said is we're not going to be the high end of the pricing, you know, for ice cream. You know, you're not going to pay eight dollars, nine dollars for an ice cream for a small. You're going to pay under five bucks. Right. Um, and what we really banking on is that quality and that value is going to get people to come back maybe two, maybe even three times a, a month. Right. And so that's kind of how we're we're approaching this, as opposed to maybe some other brands that are really more of that niche, niche, high niche quality that are that are charging a lot more but you may get less traffic from the customer right i mean that makes sense i i, I want to go back to what you said in the beginning that he saw something similar to it like a concept similar to what's going on here and decided to you know make his own spinoff on this in that process do you know i mean a lot of people do that right a lot of people who want to get into the restaurant food business are like oh i saw something here they, it should be where i live did he approach that operator and try to get some dialogue going or did he just kind of dive in and do his own homework i mean how did that really yeah that, that's a that's a long stretch from from checking it out to getting the store open yeah kyle that's a great question you know i, I think for anybody out there trying to look at maybe copying a product or or uh, or uh, basically a brand and bringing it to their own market i think there's a lot of homework that goes into that i mean when i tell you i made it i make it sound really easy but there's probably you know, six months to a year of work yeah. before we even opened the store. And a lot of that included traveling across the country. He went to some ice cream conventions, you know, <laughs> with some experts in the industry up at the um, Penn State, 
where there's big conventions on an annual basis and had a lot of conversations with experts and really came away with a, a clear understanding of the freshest ice cream you could ever have is literally the one that comes right off the assembly line. And so that's kind of really what really propelled him to say, why don't we try to duplicate what they're doing up in Northern Florida, but figure out a way to kind of uh, expedite the throughput. And it's really come down to another thing is analytics, right? And so we have the analytics down to what is the food cost on this ice cream versus a medium versus a large? How much cost are we going through each liquid nitrogen dispensing? You know, all of that analytics, um, you can't be a successful operator. You can't at least scale without understanding the costs that go into a lot of these, uh, these components of the business. And so he's really good at that. We've been able to partner and do a lot more analytics in terms of our growth. And so all we're focusing on right now is if you see a line out the door and it's 20, 30 minutes, how do you turn that line instead of 30 minutes, you know, into a 20 minute line, into a 10 minute line that's just constantly moving. Right. And that's uh, that's that's really focusing on the throughput. So in terms of things that were improved off that concept, what did he really take from that? And then what did he kind of push to the side and improve on? Yeah, well, one of the first things he initially he tried to copy as much as possible. Um, but what he ended up really realizing is that you cannot dispense the liquid nitrogen manually and be able to kind of have a very robust, efficient throughput um, system. Yeah. So what he ended up doing was creating a the technology and the infrastructure to actually dispense the liquid nitrogen automatically. So what you have now is an employee literally taking the order, typing in the order into a control panel um, that dispenses the cream or the base into a bowl, we pour the flavor in, and then we put it under the mixer, and then you type in a couple orders, and that actually dispenses automatically the liquid nitrogen, and it actually wow. mixes the bowl automatically. Wow, I mean, that's a yeah. huge, that's a huge change, right? Because yeah, probably dumping it out of like those big metal things? Is that what that's it was? Right. The so in essence, what people were doing, were taking pictures of liquid nitrogen and dumping it into a bowl, and actually, yeah. Some of the competition still does that today, right? And and the next level up was, the next iteration was a button, right? A button that automatically dispenses it, but you still require someone manning it, right? right. The way the system's designed now is you could literally have one employee manning four different mixers at once, you know, because they're all going at different times. And so I think what that addresses, Kyle, is in any restaurant, sometimes you're understaffed and you get a big rush of people, Right. And how do you kind of handle that 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 lopsidedness that exists in that restaurant? And so we have the ability to go and 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 handle 10, 15, 20 customers in a very fast order, even with two employees, you know, whereas maybe other ice cream concepts, you know, you have that one individual scooping every ice cream. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. The huge forearms by the end of the summer, yeah, like yeah, yeah. You look like <laughs> fine. Exactly. <laughs> I mean that's a that's a huge I mean it's it always comes down to systems, I think. I mean systems and people, but systems play such a huge a huge role, especially when you're trying to implement something new and, and you can be more efficient. That's definitely a leg up on your competition, I would imagine. Yeah. Um so in in that um so now you got the now the stores are you have the one the one prototype. How long before your the second one gets up off the ground? Yeah, so we actually have that system. Um, so the first one was up and running for two years um, in the first one, tweaking a lot of things, getting it done. Good news was that it was a home run store from the beginning. So, uh, you know, that whole old adage in, in, in the restaurant business, sales cures all ills, right? 
Um, so yeah. they clearly were able to make a lot of operational mistakes in the first store that, um, and, and their sales were able to make up for it. I, to give you a sense, that first store out of 700 square feet was doing somewhere between 850 to 900,000 in the that. first few years. And so it was just, it was just phenomenal, phenomenal sales. Um, when they opened up the second one, a couple of years later, they, they realized they had to go bigger. Right. Um, right. Because the size was just too small. and was too much of a constraint. And that's when they started basically um, implementing a little bit more of the design elements that they wanted to incorporate. What they did not do until they got into the third and fourth store was um, incorporating a larger nitrogen tank. So we would have to fill up the liquid nitrogen tanks almost, you know, four times a week because they were small 250 liter tanks. We're now um, at a point where we have a 3000 liter large liquid nitrogen tank sitting at the front of the store. So it's also part of that display. Oh, that very cool. And uh, and the piping is going directly from the liquid nitrogen tank directly into the mixers. So you see kind of this industrial look that looks really cool. It looks super cool. I mean, I, there's another adage that that comes to mind. And, and so many people now are kind of, you know, given what's going on, um, they're either being aggressive in the market looking for other locations or they're kind of like, you know, we're just going to ride it out and change our plans um of somebody who i respect a lot in this business uh andy forsheimer from the barteca group says that your second location is your first location did you guys find that to be true yeah i, I think that's a very good um comment I, and i would agree with that um i will tell you also that the second location a lot of the things you took for granted in the first location probably come to light in the second location, right? right? And so I think what happened in the first location too is we thought that, you know, we were experts in real estate, right? And so we're like, look, we got the Midas touch. We can pretty much put it anywhere. People are going to come. They're going to drive. And I think once you start getting into more locations, you start realizing the importance of visibility, of accessibility, of parking, and of all these things that really are the key and the cornerstone to making sure that your location is the right location. Yeah. So there was definitely some mistakes made in that second location, but because of the efficiencies of the, of the system, we were, we were still able to make some good profit on it. Um, and so that was definitely a big learning experience in that second location. We, we doubled, almost doubled the size of the store, um, but the sales weren't as large as the first location. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, luckily, the profitability was better because of the efficiencies and the technology. But still, there was some learnings there and said, hey, wait a minute, we we probably need to be a little bit more um, realistic and conservative about our approach. And yeah. I think that's one of the challenges that come with um, hitting a home run the first time out of the out of the gate. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that, that happens a lot, though. You know, you have yeah. these guys saying, well, you know, we're a destination spot where the people are going to find us, you know, we're, we're a destination spot. But I'm so glad to hear you say it as as you know, as someone in it. As saying, you know, these things do come to light because a lot of times I'll be out with a client looking for a location and I'm like, yeah, but the visibility isn't so great on this side or, they, or on this side, rather. The accessibility here, you know, you can't can't make a left out of the side of, of your drive, you know, that kind of thing. You're not they're not thinking about it or they think it's minor. And then, you know, they go spend six hundred fifty, eight hundred thousand dollars to build out the space. And they're like, yeah, then it didn't work out. But, um, yeah, uh, it's it, those are major. And I'm glad to see that you guys. Um, you know, or hear that you realize that that was a point uh, important early on. Well, the good news too is that you know we stayed focused on our growth trajectory, and luckily, um, while the ROI on that second store wasn't where we wanted to, we still felt that we had a very good model and a unique model that, you know, frankly speaking, that first store was really funding a lot of the growth, right, for the right. second, third, and fourth stores that we opened. 
Um, and so that's in essence, what you want to do is you want to learn from your mistakes. You want to kind of tweak it. And you also want to be able to kind of reach out to people in the industry to kind of say, hey, what, what do you think about this? Where can you help us with some of these factors? And so our third store was actually a conversion, um, which, you know, you mentioned it uh, a little while ago, but we're, we're entering a time right now where we're seeing a lot of conversion opportunities, you know, and for obviously there's a lot of restaurant um, owners that are suffering out there and they got to really figure out how to make the best of their existing uh, four walls. But for those that are in a position to potentially capitalize on this, uh, this moment we're living through, you know, there's a lot of um, turnkey opportunities out there that can really allow you to get into some really good real estate. And so we did that on our third location. Um, we just did that on our eighth location that we just opened up in November as well. But, um, but that location, the third location ended up being a, another home run for us. So we kind of went from, from a high of the first yeah. to kind of the second one. And then the third one was a really good one. And so we started really learning what works and what doesn't work uh, for our brand. And luckily, Kyle, all of these were company stores, so they weren't franchise stores. And so we were able to make some mistakes. But um, clearly, once you get three stores open, you now have a system that you can start showing to potential investors and start showing to people to start saying, hey, look, here's here are the differences between our brand and, and this is what you can do with us. And I would imagine, you know, showing investors that you've adapted and learned from what works, what doesn't work is a huge, huge plus too, right? I mean, they like to see the adaptability, which I think is a very important now for concepts as we move forward. Yeah, look, I, I like to tell people, I talk to investors all the time about franchising and I can tell them that the one guarantee I can give them is that we're gonna make some mistakes, right? We're we're trying to go take from a from an eight store unit uh, franchise concept to take it national. And so there are gonna be some mistakes made along the way, but I have your best interest at heart and I wanna create a dialogue, right, with investors, right? So it's not just, hey, you invested in me, now go hear the instruction on how to execute your plan. But if you're bringing something to the table, if your background is in PR or marketing or in operations or logistics, I wanna learn from you. I wanna learn how we can make this system better. And so being open-minded to the fact that we don't have all the answers, but collectively we can come up with some great answers together. I think that's where the power of franchising is and that's yeah. what we wanna create. And I think if you're, I mean, I think there's a certain breed that gets involved with, with franchise versus independent restaurant operator. I think that's something you'd love to hear, right? You'd love to hear that we're going to have this dialogue and we're going to figure this out together because you don't want to be just dumped with some menus and some product and like throw some signs up, right? I mean, that, that relationship is vital. Totally vital. And, and look, I think it's, it's a weird balance though, Kyle, because, um, restaurant tours by nature they're just hustlers right they're entrepreneurs they kind of like they see an opportunity to jump through the window I've heard that. i want entrepreneurs but what i don't want are renegades right like, like there's a balance between wanting someone who's an entrepreneur and can look at your operational plan and say hey i think there's ways we can improve it and then there's that renegade who i walk into their store two months after opening and they're selling you know mm -hmm. They're selling sausages off the, the kitchen because they know they can make more profit off that. So right. there's a balance. Um, and that's all part of the, the discussion, right? The, to, the full transparency that you want to give them up front. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I was, it's funny you said sausage. I was going to say, next thing you know, they're selling hot dogs. Right, uh, right, right. But that, yeah, that's, that kind of stuff happens. So now you guys have had the eight stores and you're looking to franchise. You must have had a pretty successful past eight to 12 months. Yeah, so the, we've definitely uh, look. Knock on wood, we had yeah. a very, um, very tumultuous 2020 that ended in the positive um, realm. We we actually yeah. ended 2020 positive three percent in all our stores over the year before. Wow. Uh, this is after March and April, which were brutal, right? right. Um, 
but but we're luckily we made some quick pivots, right? And once once again, being uh, the benefit of having a small company um, and being able to kind of make immediate changes, we were able to implement some changes immediately to our operational structure that allowed us to capitalize on this experience that we're going through. And I'm more than happy to share some of those with you. Yeah, let me. I mean, what, what was the, what, were, what were the main takeaways? What were some of the major pivots that you guys implemented? Yeah, well, look, I, I think the first and foremost was um, our stores tend to be a little smaller. So we we immediately um, closed all in-store dining. And and part of that wasn't so much that it was instructed by the city. We The city actually took longer to do that. I live down in Miami and and everybody knows Florida has been open for business for a very long time. But um, but our employees were telling us, look, we don't feel comfortable with 50 people in here. Right. Yeah, right. And, and we wanted to make sure that our employees stayed safe and healthy. And so we kind of brought, we basically brought the register through the front door, uh, created a, a little circle around the, like kind of like a six foot opening in front of the store and allowed one customer at a time to come in there. Within uh, three days after the pandemic started, we also created um, a platform online that allowed you to order from your home and pick up at store. So, so you don't lo longer have to come order and wait, you know, five minutes to kind of get your order. Um, so that was a huge win for us as we started seeing more people ordering online. The other thing that was huge for us was the fact that um, we were already doing some business with Uber Eats. Um, but after, after this pandemic started, within three days, we were on Postmates, on Grubhub, on DoorDash, on every single one of them. And one of the unique things about our um, operational execution is that all we need to do is add more liquid nitrogen and it literally freezes the entire um, product, put it in a paper bag, and it's basically good for 10, 15 minutes so it gets to your house. And it's literally as if I was handing it over to you on the counter. So you could imagine what that does. We went from doing 10% delivery before the pandemic to as high as 65, 60% delivery. Wow. And, uh, and even now, as things started kind of normalizing themselves, we're still at 30% delivery. So interesting. I think it's one of those changes, Kyle. I don't know that we'll ever get back to 10%. I don't know what you're hearing from some of your other clients, but I think delivery for a lot of people, this introduced them to the efficiency of a delivery, and it may be here to stay at a, at a high level. I think what it is, I think what it did is it kind of like plays into that Amazon culture of I want it when I want it. Right. And if I can't get over there, if my other option is to have it delivered, then yeah, sure. I would love to have some chilling right now at my, at my desk and yeah. I, I, I can't leave or I don't want to leave or whatever the case is. So it's, I think it's, it's just part of our human nature almost now at this point to, to grab our phone and say ice cream or have it saved or open your own app. I mean, that's, that's, I think where we're at. And I don't think there's any avoiding it. I don't think we're ever going back to, like you said, to your 10%, you're probably going to you know, maybe fall down a little bit, but I think it's here to stay. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, I think everyone has stories of of ordering from one of these platforms, uh, looking at the amount and being like, wow, I'm paying this much and still ordering. I mean, you're paying for convenience, right? Yeah. And and people have we've proven that we'll pay for, for convenience, right? So that's that's major. So now you're so now you're looking to franchise. How did you decide on franchising the con? I mean, it seems perfect for franchising. How did you decide on that as opposed to opening up, you know, a hundred corporate owned stores? Yeah, look, so, so you know, in all fairness, the family had to come to this decision um, as I was brought into a system with the franchising because of my background. So right. family basically said, look, we're growing at a, at a small clip, but, you know, we're growing one or two stores, one store every two years on a company basis. But if we really want to build a company here, you know, and leverage the technology that we've been able to develop, 
the, the real way to go is to try to use other investors' capital to grow, right? Um, granted, the return is a little bit less, but the ROI on that is much higher, right? And so the return on invested capital on a franchise model is much higher than the return on invested capital on your own model, right? Because there's literally zero dollars being invested in opening franchise units with the exception of, you know, investing in the support and all the, all the things that go around supporting that franchisee. And so that to me and to them was really a good way to go. So we could see ourselves opening 10 stores in a year, you know, without very little um, additional capital being invested in the company with the exception of what kind of support that we want to increment the business by, right? Yeah. That, that's, why, that's why we decided to go down the path of franchising. We thought that that was the best way to kind of get our product across the country as fast as possible. Now, these eight stores are all corporate owned, right? Correct. There, there are two licensed stores that were licensees long, long ago, but really all of them are company owned with the exception of those two stores. Okay. So what are you, how do you decide on, I mean, South Florida, ice cream, it's warm. It seems to go hand in hand. I, you know, my parents live in, in Delray, so, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with some of the ice cream concepts there that seem to be always packed. So is there a seasonality to it? I mean, how are you identifying your, your locations moving forward? Yeah, so there is a believe it or not, there is seasonality to it even down here, right? And so to give you a sense, um, our our busiest time of the year is really after November and New Year's. Um, like the Christmas holiday is just gangbusters, and and I think for a lot of people across the country, there's just so many people out. They don't want to cook. Kids are home for the holidays, you know, and so they're getting a lot of ice cream from us. But there also is a seasonality around the summertime. You know, kids out of school. You know, they're they're basically um, out and about a lot more throughout the day. Kids are in sports. And so right after school gets out um, is is a big push for us during summer, August time period. People go away because, you know, it gets pretty unbearable down here in Florida. So there's a little dip. So there is a little seasonality, maybe not as much as up north. I'm from up north. I can tell you that um, we ate, we ate ice cream year round, but not as much as obviously spring and summertime. The one thing I will tell you is because of that, come March timeframe up north, the lines are just through the roof, right? Like it's just right. the lines are out of the corner, you know, because your your ice cream place is finally either opening up or doing a grand opening for the spring. And so you see a lot more of an uptick in sales in the north. But there isn't a drastic change on a year over year sales between northern stores and southern stores, if that helps you any. So it's not like stores north of the Dixie line are doing drastically better in sales than, than stores south of the Dixie line. Yeah. I mean, there's that pent up demand, right? Like, I mean, people are always like, you know, him in the North, they're like, you know, they can't wait for the warm weather. They can't wait for that ice cream season. So I, I can, I can see that. I mean, in regards to, you know, that growth is just going back to, to what that looks like. How do you, I mean, when you have somebody approaches you for a franchisee, right? Are there some characteristics that you, look for that are standard or how, how could people put, how could somebody prepare themselves to be the best franchisee for your concept? Yeah, look, I, I think one of the things that are, is really important for me is to understand their experience or their interest in leading a team. And I'm not saying just leading a team, a corporate team, like, but keep in mind, most of our employees, if not all of them are either high school or college kids. So that's a completely different workforce. Right. And so being able to kind of connect with younger people, being able to be looked upon as really their first mentor or first boss ever, and understanding that you're going to have a lot of part-time people that 
are trying to go off to college or trying to yeah. balance a lot of things in high school. Those things, getting someone that understands that demographic is really uh, key for me. Um, yeah. Also someone who has a vision, right? So when we sell franchises, granted, we understand you're going to start with one, but honestly, my preference is to bring in a franchisee that has a vision to grow to three. And I'll tell you why, because back when I was at Burger King, there was a, there was a stage in Burger King's life cycle where they would walk into a DMA um, like Dallas and there would be 50 stores and 40 franchisees. And it's just yeah. kind of like, you know, that, that creates challenges, yeah, right? right? Learning from what, what I've gone through in the past, what I'd really like to do is go into a DMA with 20 stores and potentially five franchisees, right? And each of them having four stores because regardless of how good of a job we do and, and the real estate team does and the franchisee does, you know, you are going to have some stores that hit the average. You're going to have some stores that are home runs and you're going to have some stores that are below the average. I don't care what you do. You, you know, all the metrics that we put together are not going to guarantee a home run store every single time. Yeah. Imagine you want some. So if, if, if I'm a regional guy, like in the Metro New York region, you'd want somebody who has some continuity with the concept, right? Especially when it's kind of new. So, you know, if right. you're a good operator and you did a good job vetting them out and, and, they, and they're, they're who you want them to be, you don't want too many you know, it just seems like people want to have that same experience, whether they're in Hoboken or if they're in Stanford, Connecticut. Correct. No, that's great. And, and look, for all your other restaurateurs, I think one of the benefits also of opening multiple locations is you kind of get to leverage your labor force. Right. And so now my manager of one store becomes a, a, a area manager of two or three stores and I'm still paying him the yeah. same amount. Right. And so there's economies of scale that you can experience from opening multiple stores. But exactly to your point, Kyle. A customer doesn't care whether it's a yeah. chilling franchisee X or chilling franchisee Y. They just see the brand, right? And so yeah. for me to go to New York, it's a lot easier for me to sell the opportunity for someone to be the sole franchisee in a market of 10 stores than to have to share that with five other franchisees who may have varying degrees of focus on operational excellence. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, I, I know for, for me, you know, I, I've met a lot of guys. They're definitely a different breed of operator. And um, I would imagine that, you know, some of those guys who are franchisee, they still like to be front facing a little bit. They like to be, you know, known who they are. And I think that that goes a long way in like differentiating yourself. Even if you're a franchise, having somebody there who's the face and, and knows what they're doing and knows the business. And, and you know, like I said, you vetted them out there. So they're ready to go. I mean, that that's a big deal. You don't want to have that contradicting with somebody on the other side who's just an absentee franchise guy who just dumped a bunch of money into something. Right. Yeah, you know, you're right. Look, I mean, um, there's there's also kind of the the way of looking at it is you want the franchisee that's not scared to go in the bathroom and clean up, you know, and and right. kind of shift and 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 do whatever it takes to kind of make sure the store and the employees feel like it's it's part of a team, you know. And so um, that's also something big. And and listen, I think another thing that that really plays into whether you're able and capable of owning multiple stores is how much of a micromanager you tend to be, right? If you're good at delegating and you empower your team, then you know what? You can definitely see yourself as being a multi-unit operator. But if you have that one restaurant and you are looking over everything that happens, yeah. really second guessing or questioning or on top of it, you may not be suited for multiple locations. You know? Yeah. No, I, I, to be honest, so this is one of my things, you know, I get people who reach out and they want to open up uh, another location like you know i tend to focus on more national concepts but every once in a while we get like a one-off guys looking for a second yeah. location and i'm like great yeah we can go on tour um next thursday or friday whatever you like to do we can set it up 
And then last minute, they, they cancel. Can't make it. Next, same thing. Next minute, cancel. Can't make it. My next conversation is like, look, I don't think you're ready to grow. Right, right. We scheduled this a week ago. And if you can't get away from the restaurant for two hours to go look at sites, something's not right. And I'm probably doing you a favor, by, but you know, don't get mad at me. <laughs> yeah, I think you are doing a favor. And then another thing is, if you're not able to sit down and actually analyze the business, right? I don't care where you are in your business. If you can't allocate enough time to be strategic, which how you take your existing business from point A to point B, and you're just so busy in the weeds, you're not ready to grow. No. You're not ready to grow. And, and, yeah. and that's okay. By the way, yeah. that's okay. There's a lot of successful one-store operators that do phenomenal. Believe me, yeah. but it's just not something that's in the cards. No, I'm glad you said that too, because it's often taken as a negative. And it's like, no, you, you know, sometimes these guys are so head down. They're, they're so focused on the delivery that's coming in, what time the bartender is going to be there or whatever the case may be that they're not seeing that. Like, actually you're in your own way. This is not working. You got to figure out another way to make this work before you look for number two. Right. And I'll give you an example too. And, and it's kind of kudos to the ownership group and my partners you know, they were a family run business that had been doing this for, you know, close to eight years, seven years before they reached out to me. And it takes a big, you know, it's a big step for a family run business that's been making all the decisions to bring someone in as a CEO of a company. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's also them recognizing that we want to go in a direction that we don't have a lot of experience about. And for an owner to kind of say, I'm not good at this, so I need to bring in help. I think is also, it speaks a lot to like the mental maturity of that owner. And I think we as operators, we as owners, as restaurateurs have to know what we're good at and what we're yeah. not good at. Oh, yeah. Something, let's bring somebody in to help us, you know? Yeah. I mean, that is, oh man, that, that those are, I say that stuff all the time and I feel like people look at me like, oh yeah, uh, I do, but they, right. but they don't. And it's like, you know, like, well, I don't want to pay, you know, somebody, I'll update my own website. I'm like, well, for 75 bucks a month, you can get somebody to do it and it actually looks good. That makes sense. Like, oh, I don't want to spend the money. Okay, we gotta fill we got you know, you gotta run through so you're it's, it's could be put to better use. So I, yeah, I, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, I don't want to keep you too long. So I, I have a little a little thing that I like to end the shows with called overrated or underrated. Okay. All right. I I I generally take my cues from your concept and maybe I got a little hints from what's going on behind you there. So um, quick one sentence, three, one sentence, three to five words is fine. Um, but feel free, feel free to go deeper if, if you feel moved to do so. All right. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Overrated or underrated? Oat milk. Overrated. Overrated. drive throughs Underrated. Underrated. The New York Giants. Overrated. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I gotta call it like it is, man. I gotta call it like it is. <laughs> um, South Beach. Uh, overrated. What do you like better? Where, what's uh, your, where's your South. go to? Like a Florida guy, I think like you're on vacation all the time, but where do you go spend your days off? Yeah, man. If you're gonna go down here, you wanna go to Wynwood. You know, uh, you know, Wynwood's the place to be, you know, Brickell's even a better spot than South Beach, you know, so that's uh, anybody who knows Miami now is knows that's where the action is. That's awesome. Um, ben and Jerry's. They're, they're underrated. I would say I love those guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, let, let me tell you something else that and I'll give you a little longer on that. 
you know, there comes a point in the growth of your company that you can just say whatever you want and whatever yeah. you feel. And you don't, you know, you don't have to answer to most people. And I really love their kind of uh, social messages that they're thinking, they're thinking beyond being an ice cream company. And I think that's something powerful. Yeah. I mean, that they get that FU money. They can really start. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm literally telling my guys all the time. I'm like, how many units do you have before uh, it's that FU money? Right? <laughs> For sure. Uh, the New York Yankees. Um, they're always, ah, uh, uh, um, you know, underrated. Uh, all right. Underrated. You're yeah. a good sport. Um, well, Dave, it was, was, uh, I'm glad you took the time to, uh, to chat with us today. I'm really looking forward to checking out one of the stores. I guess you, the Fort Lauderdale store would be the closest to the ones that my parents are by, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, uh, we, we, we have another one up in Coral Springs. That's a little bit closer to you, but you should come check out either one of them, man. It's uh, we'd love to have you, man. And you come check out the new menu. For sure. I mean, I love, I'm done. It's about 34 degrees here. So um, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. You don't want to know you what you don't want to know what it is here. No, I can already see more sunlight than what you have coming in your window. So I, I, I got the vibes. Yeah, my my dad calls me every day, and he's like, uh, "Hey," and he's like, "It's you know seventy eight here." I'm like, "Yeah, dude, I know, I know, I know. It's always warm. I got it." You know what's crazy about moving down here is that it doesn't take long before sixty five degree weather, and you're out there with a jacket and a hood, and it's just like I'm an embarrassment to my family up north. Oh yeah, I actually I was the chef for a hospitality group in the U.S. Virgin Islands for four years, and when I first moved, I moved there in February, and there were kids that I met there, and they were like wearing flannels and hoodies, and I'm like, I just got a plane from JFK. It was like minus three degrees. But yeah, you're right. It doesn't doesn't take long to acclimate in your blood out a little bit, but yeah, man. Um, all right, Dave. Thanks so much. Good luck with the franchising, and uh, we'll be in touch. Hey, great chatting with you, Kyle. Thanks a lot, man. Take, Take care. care. All right. See ya. And that is a wrap on episode 52 with David Leonardo. Thanks for checking it out, guys. I think, you know, I love these stories of, of concepts that start off as an idea and grow into something much more, such as being one of the hottest franchise opportunities in the U.S. So congratulations to David and the Chillin' team on that. They've got three locations right now in um, South Florida, Pinecrest, 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 Aventura in Fort Lauderdale. And, you know, as we mentioned on the show, they are franchising. So the best bet to get more information on the franchising opportunity with these guys is to head over to the Instagram, head over to their Instagram. It's Chillin, C-H-I-L-L-N underscore ice cream. And there's a link there in their bio for more information on franchising opportunities. So, um, all right, guys, thanks for checking out the show. That's it. Hope you enjoyed and uh, we'll check you out next week. Have a great day, guys.